Kathy Motlatana on SAFM. All right, let me kick off then by welcoming our guest this hour, Paul Holden, author and director of investigations at Shadow World Investigations. Paul, it's a pleasure to meet you in person. We've had so many conversations on different platforms, but to have you here in studio, such a pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You are one of the few people we can point to that we know for an absolute fact has read the findings <laughs> of the Sonder Commission from beginning to end. Um, I was telling you of A that, um, of course, when I got started with reading, I, I simply couldn't keep up. Mm. So I go to the relevant sections. You know, something comes up and you go, okay, well, what did they actually do w- with this? But Transnet, okay, let me go to the Transnet section and find what they said. What did the Sonder Commission find? It is quite a lot to take in. And a lot of work to try and, and 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 densify into something that is easy to read, easy to navigate for simple people like myself. How how long did it take you? Um, it, it probably took me about uh, about six months to do it all, um, mm-hmm. to read through all the reports, make sort of extensive notes, compare my notes across the different reports, and then actually write up the book. Um, I think it, it was quite an enjoyable process. Um, because I think, you know, when the Xander Commission was happening, there was so much information happening mm. and the, the reports came out in quite an odd way. They, you know, they were staggered. They came out month after month and they didn't come out in like a thematic way. So you'd have one report talking about what is the nature of state capture and then in the same volume, something about, the, you know, new age. Yes, yes. Right. And it didn't have like a coherency or cogency to it because they were just releasing the reports as they were finished. But mm. when you read them from beginning to end and then you start organizing the information, it becomes a much more interesting and compelling overall story of both the work of the commission, but also the nature of state capture in South Africa. And, and that's what I found with your book is that it reads like a story. Um, and of course, sort of littered with all that comes with South African politics, right? But the way in which you have um, characterized the different players, so you don't have to think about what happened in Transnet in isolation to what happened at ESCOM in isolation because you have a way of weaving all of these threads together and you do that so well in the book. Oh, that's that's very kind. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, mm. I think it, it's, a, it's a process of ordering all the information mm. which the commission didn't have time or, or the, you know, the ability to do um, allows us to tell the story sort of from beginning to end or at least in sort of like some sort of thematic Mm. cogency um and i'm hoping that people will find it easy to read i mean that's the intention of the book and you know a lot of the work that that i've done sort of my whole career um but also you know the fundamental principle behind shadow world investigations and the work that we do is the idea that citizens require and need knowledge in order to hold their own rulers to account Mm. um and a lot of the work that i've done in my life is about making sure that we take these very inaccessible ivory tower discussions in courtrooms which are really fundamentally very important um but not accessible and to make that accessible to the average person and i'm hoping that's what the book achieves the arms deal and the book that you wrote on the arms deal um required you to go almost as in-depth as you, as you have with, mm. with, the, with, with this uh, Zondo Commission of Inquiry. What would you say were, the, were some of the biggest differences um, in terms of, of the work that, that, you have to, that you've had to do? Well, I think the, the arms deal one came from a different place because mm. the arms deal one, you know, the reason I, I wrote that book is because I got interested in the arms deal when I was working for Mark Avissa, who was writing The Dream Deferred at the time. Um, and... What I realized is when I tried to understand the arms deal as a 23-year-old, there was no simple guide. There was no way to understand it unless you spent two months reading through 10,000 media articles. Mm-hmm. And so the arms in your pocket was to take everything in the public domain and condense it for the average reader. The, this book has been slightly easier in the sense that I'm working with the Zonda Commission's work, right? The Zonda Commission has gone out and found the evidence and and published these incredible reports that are probably too long for people to read. Um, So it's been slightly easier for me. um, But I think what it's allowed me to do is to like really get my teeth into Into what the Zondo says and like Mm. really get to grips with some very interesting discussions that that appear in the reports that I think people didn't even notice were happening, Mm. um, Mm. which I'm hoping we can pull out a bit more in the book. One of the things that strikes me is that um, in how you've chosen to 
to highlight the SOEs that mm. were at the heart of state capture that were also the focus of the Zondo Commission of Inquiry. Um, you know, and, and you've set that out based on uh, the chapters and how you've, you, you've themed the chapters. So we've got uh, Translate, ESCOM, South African Airways, Denal, SABC, um, the New Age, Prasa, etc. When we look at the state of those institutions today, mm. They all are in ruins in one way or another. Each one of these institutions has had to go to government to ask for a bailout of mm -hmm. sort. Um, and it's, it's hard to think that this is, it's hard not to think that this is the legacy of what took place under state capture. Mm. I think that's very true. I mean, I think if you read those reports, they, as a South African, they, they're heartbreaking, actually, mm. um, to see... Uh, you know, institutions like ESCOM and SAA just fall apart because the people who are running them didn't care about anything beyond lining their own pockets and that mm. of the Guptas. Mm. Um, and, you know, the thing that's quite difficult about reading these reports, and then I'm hoping I've condensed them in a way that people can understand them, but it's just like it's example after example after example after example of they shouldn't have done this. This was a bad idea. This was illegal. This was a violation. This was corrupt. And it was absolutely rampant in these SEOs. And mm. I think that's probably the reason why we, we sit where we are now. I mean, I think without that corruption, with a commitment to good governance, you know, the economy is complicated, but I definitely think they'd be in a much better place than they are now. One of the things that uh, I found um, specifically going, because I also had to sort of decide what is it that we're going to focus on for this interview, mm. because they, there's quite a bit. ESCOM, of course, becomes the obvious one mm. because of where the country is. We have... South Africans that are dealing with low shedding on a day-to-day -day basis. We have a contested narrative in terms of what people believe to be, uh, the, to have been behind the destruction of ESCOM. You have some individuals today that are saying, well, um, the likes of Brian Mulefe and Matela Koko should be brought back to ESCOM to try and help save the day because there was no load shedding, no um, load shedding, at least to the extent that we have it today. Mm. And reading the the chapter on ESCOM, um, <laughs> and I was fascinated in the fact that you started this way. You say, um, the capture of ESCOM was one of the more complete and incontrovertible cases of state capture. Following their success in manipulating every tender in sight at Transnet, Brian Molefe and Anot Singh were sent to ESCOM to continue in this vein. Mm -hmm. And how you have structured it is that the corruption at ESCOM should not be seen in isolation to the corruption at mm -hmm. Transnet. That Transnet was really the breeding ground mm -hmm. of these relationships, how they, they, they became organized in the way that they were. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, I think that's why, you know, for me, the, the big three SEO reports mm -hmm. um, that the commission did, and I think the three best reports the commission did from every possible perspective, is, is Transnet, ESCOM, and SAA. Mm. Because they in those three reports, when you read them together, describe the essence of state capture. And, you know, what you have at Transnet, you know, when I did work for the commission and I helped yeah. them sort of quantify the extent of state capture, Transnet was the place where the most amount of money was wasted. It's the primary site of state capture. Mm. And then it's ESCOM. And it's clear that it was a program. First, we'll go to Transnet and we'll take over Transnet and we'll, you know, we'll do the 1064 locomotive deal. And once that's done, we'll move on to another side of state capture, and that was ESCOM. And it's clear it was a pattern. Um, you know, what the commission does is refers to the Gupta enterprise throughout the um, the work. And they, they use that term very, uh, very specifically with a very specific legal reason, which is that they're referring to it as a racketeering enterprise. And a racketeering enterprise is a group of people who are effectively formed like a de facto business of mm. criminality. Mm. And the commission was saying that the Guptas created a business that included people like Brian Malefi as employees of the Gupta enterprise. And ESCOM was sort of the, the moment where their methodology of capture was perfected. I mean, there's, a, there's a terrifying discussion at the beginning mm -hmm. of the report on ESCOM where they go through every board member that's appointed in December 2014 and how basically I think it's every single member bar one or two has connections to the Gupta enterprise, like really direct connections, mm -hmm. right? Like they're relatives. They're like on the boards of the same companies. Yeah, that was where it was, you know, perfected and, and so totally complete. And I think 
the reason why you don't have a larger amount of money going out of ESCOM is just because it's in 2016 that the bank shut down the bank accounts and things start getting disrupted and the Gupta leaks happen. But if those things hadn't happened, I, mean, I think the extent of stake at stake at ESCOM would have been just almost unimaginable. Today, we still talk about corruption that is embedded. Transnet, mm-hmm. Prasa, ESCOM, SAA. Is that how this corruption became embedded? That it became part of, of the system that today officials are unable to, to, to break off the, those tentacles of, of corruption that still remain? Yeah, I think that's true. I think it creates this culture of corruption and a culture of impunity. I mean, mm-hmm. the sad reality is that, you know, from a reputational perspective, people like Brian Malefi and Anosh Singh can't deny what the commission says about them and all the like, incredible evidence, but they haven't faced any really serious comeuppance. You know, they haven't gone to jail. Um, and I think that sends quite a powerful message to people that, you know, you may be dragged in front of a commission of inquiry, but, you know, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world if you mm-hmm. don't go to jail. That's to level all their money. That's to level all their ill-gotten gains. I, I do also think there's something to be understood about, especially, you know, we, when you're looking at companies that deal with infrastructure, you know, there's a physical reality to these companies. There's a physical reality to ESCOM and Transnet, which is, you know, the tracks on the ground and the, rains that, the trains that run on them. It's the power stations. It's the power lines, right? And the longer an institution gets captured in this way, the more everything degrades. It's not just a degradation of governance. It's a degradation of the underlying infrastructure. And it's a doom loop, right? Mm -hmm. And once it starts degrading, it gets worse and worse and worse. And it's very hard to bring it back from that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're seeing now is that, you know, the calls to bring back Malefe and Coco, I, I just think they're just absurd and insane if you read the, the Zonda Commission. It's just there's no way you could possibly think these people are reasonable actors who mm-hmm. acted in the public interest at all. And even if we do bring them back, you know, I can't see how those people will pull South Africa back from this, this infrastructure that they've overseen the destruction of, yeah. pull it back from the brink. Interesting that um, just as, as you speak about Transnet, just in the last two weeks, Transnet has had to uh, scale down on operations due to, again, the ongoing infrastructure problems mm. that that it has been facing. So the legacy of those issues are still very much with us. There are what I would describe as main characters, right? So you get the people that are well-known, your Brian Malefes, your Anoch Singhs, have, you don't have to explain necessarily who those people are. When you look at the boards that were constituted, they are players that sort of go under the radar. Mm-hmm. They are people who have not made headlines. But when you look at their associations with the Gupta family, one of the things I like about the book is that you will have board the names of board members or even individuals that were associated with a particular place at a particular time. And then you highlight for the reader. So this is the role that this person played. These, and, and these are the material facts um, that, 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 that the Zondo Commission was able to uncover, right? So you will have this board member appointed in December 2014. This is what his connection to the Guptas is. And these are the other material facts that have been unearthed by the Zondo Commission of Inquiry. What happens to these individuals? Where are these individuals today? What what work are they doing? Mm. Because I, I want to give examples, but I also don't want to give examples because <laughs> I, I don't I don't want to seem like I'm necessarily picking on um, on, on 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 individuals because there's there's a list of of board members that you've gone through. Mm. But but the natural question is. These individuals that had a role, because that's what you, that's what the Zondo Commission uncovered, that state capture wasn't a one-man event. Mm. It needed different players at different levels, all working for the same objective. And you had individuals across the board that were captured mm. by the Guptas. Now, it's easy to point to your Brian Mulefes because, well, he's the CEO, so... Of course, there's a fiduciary duty mm. on him, but there's also a fiduciary responsibility on the board mm. and the board members. Mm. And somehow, some of these characters have just managed to slide under the radar. Mm-hmm. 
I agree. I mean, I think the commission is very clear that these people need to be held account accountable. And they've made a lot of recommendations around these people need to be prosecuted or the MPA needs to look into them. I'm not sure that's been happening. I mean, I think the MPA has focused on a, on a handful of cases to begin with. Um, I'm hoping, I mean, I don't know if this is the case, but I'm hoping that once they've dealt with the people like Brahim Alevin and Oj Singh, they will move on to the secondary layer of characters. Mm. And you're right, it, there is a vast number of people involved in this um, that need to be held to account. And, and if I may, one thing I mentioned at the beginning of the book is that we that I've created a website that goes along with the book. Yes. Here, which is zonda at your at fingertips your fingertips, yeah. info, right? Yeah. And the reason I created that was because there's so much more additional public information that I thought should be made available that we couldn't fit into the book, but I think should be free. Mm. So one of the things we have on there, for example, there's free resources for anybody to go and download if they want to understand state capture, uh, one of which is a cast of characters. Right. And I've included literally every single person who appears in the Zonda Commission report. There's like a brief biography about them and what the commission says about them. So at the very least, there's a record of everybody who's named. And it's sort of like a I don't want to say a hit, a hit list of prosecution targets, mm. but it's definitely a reminder of, you know, the work that still needs to be done. It, it brings up the question of of blacklisting, mm. Paul, um, and, and what we then do once we know and have certain information about some individuals and how we ensure that these individuals don't continue benefiting from doing work with the state. Mm. But th th that's something that we'll touch on uh, some more in a moment when conversation with Paul Holding, we're discussing uh, his latest book, Zondo at Your Fingertips. And as he said, there is a website, uh, Zondo at Your Fingertips.info. Uh, that's the website that they've put up in conjunction, conjunction with this book. And it really is very easy to navigate. It simplifies some of the information that, that's there. And you can even search for the characters, some of the characters somebody maybe whose name you came up there are lots of people who ask whatever happened to Quinana if you need to remind yourself of the evidence or what the Zondo Commission found just search and, and that will come up it's 10.30 time for the latest news headlines we'll continue with Paul in a moment The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana weekdays 9am till midday we continue the conversation on the talking point. Uh, we're speaking to Paul Holden about uh, the book that he's just released, and it really is um, an easy guide to the Zondo Commission of Inquiry and its findings. And that's important to highlight. Uh, you know, this is not Paul's idea of what should have happened. This is the, the findings of the Zondo Commission, and he's just put it into a book that will make it accessible to all of us and easy for all of us to read. We've touched on Brian Molefe. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Matela Coco, uh, Paul, simply because of some of the things that we hear listeners say on this platform about a Matela Coco. Often, um, we had advocate Andy Mutivi of the SIU in studio two weeks ago, and and I put this question to him about what do you what do you make of um, the suggestions for these two individuals to go back to ESCOM, um, and he said, well, based on the evidence that they as the SIU have found, it would be a bad idea, especially because there are cases that these two still have to answer to, mm. right? And some people then come back and say, well, the findings of the Zondo Commission don't necessarily mean that this person has been found guilty. Mm. It doesn't attribute guilt. It just says that there is a case or there are things that this person has to answer to. On Matela Koko, you say that the commission found that Koko was central to a number of state capture cases. It also suggested that Goko's suspension was a ruse designed to ensure that later when the Guptas to ensure that when later the Guptas used him, there would be no suspicion of his association with the Guptas. Mm. So that's a, a material fact and finding of the commission. Mm. How do you respond to somebody who says, but this individual has not been found guilty by a court of law? And he himself says that mm. on social media, on Twitter. He's very vocal about the fact that he did no wrong at ESCOM. Mm. 
I mean, I, I have been following his Twitter account because it's quite an interesting um, exercise in, in like post facto public relations, like understanding how he presents himself. And he's very canny, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, he's very good on social media mm-hmm. in presenting himself as this victim and as a potential savior. Um, I mean, I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is that a commission of inquiry isn't a court of law, right? And that's a good thing and a bad thing. And I and I actually, you know, a big part of what I do in the, the first part of the book is I explain to people what the difference is between a court of law and a commission of inquiry, right? And the upside of a commission of inquiry is that a commission of inquiry isn't bound by the same evidentiary rules as a court of law. It can find, it can go anywhere mm. and get get information because the idea behind a commission of inquiry is to get all possible information and consider it. So there's a very, you know, the Zonda Commission's investigation is so much more substantial and complete than you'd get from a court process because they've looked at every possible thing. They'll, you know, they'll accept hearsay, they'll accept newspaper articles. You know, there's a, there's a much broader range of, of accepting that stuff. But it's, and I'll say two things in response to that. You know, the first thing is if you read the Zonda Commission reports, there is no doubt that the commission was of the opinion that Coco had repeatedly used his position of power um, to benefit the Guptas and other people and behaved, you know, totally outside the realms of good governance. But there's also a very interesting discussion about um, you know, this idea of he hasn't been found guilty in a court of law, which has become like a standard defense that mm-hmm. a lot of politicians use, right? And Zonda himself addresses this. He says, how is this the standard of our politics now? How is our standard of politics, I haven't been found guilty yet in a court of law, as if that is some sort of defense against like the realm, like the absolute reams of evidence of wrongdoing. Uh, you know, he is very clear. He's, he thinks that it speaks to like the degradation of our politics, that mm. that is the best we can say about some of the people who we've been promoting. And he, you know, he's very clear that this is, this is not acceptable. Mm. You know, court processes take a long time. There's many reasons why something might not come to court for years and years and years. But that doesn't mean South Africans have to make themselves deaf to the evidence they see. It's just an, an obscene and insane thing to say. I mean, to give maybe an inflammatory example, it's like Jacob Zuma hasn't been found guilty in a court of law on the arms deal. But there have been multiple court cases where thousands of pages of evidence have been set out explaining his role in the arms deal. Are we supposed to just ignore that as citizens? Are we supposed to just be like, no, you know, we're not going to listen to that. We're not going to acknowledge it because he hasn't appeared before a judge. No, because that's not how politics and how society works. Mm. You know, we don't rely on the courts to decide what isn't isn't true all the time. We can use our own brains to look at the evidence and assess it and decide on the basis of the facts. You know, And, you know, Coco and, and Zuma can put out their versions if they want to and then decide whether they're appropriate to be appointed. And I think on the available facts that we have, the idea that Coco could be anywhere near power is terrifying. And ultimately, what this says is that this information must mean something mm. to the public, that it can't be out there and, and mean nothing. Mm. Um, d- does that expectation set, uh, s- set the, the grounds for disappointment? Because the natural reaction is that if you're aware that X person has done one, two, three, four, the expectation would be that based on that information, um, how this person is viewed in terms of doing work with the state, etc., will change. It will be different. But that is not the culture that we have in, in this country. Mm. In fact, what we see is that, let's talk about Edwin Sodi. And Estina, mm-hmm. right? He is all over that. Um, if we go to um, what was uh, Gangster State, mm. the book written by Peter Dutoy, that again, elaborate in providing information, quite frankly, that mirrors what the Zondo Commission of Inquiry found too. Mm. That in and of itself paints a picture of this individual that has been embroiled in controversy Today, we talk about a cholera outbreak in Hamanskral. When we look at the work that was supposed to be done, tenders, guess whose name comes up? Edwin Sodi. <laughs> and so the, the lessons are simply not being learned. Mm. Is it because even when information like this is, is released, we, we simply don't add meaning to mm. it? It doesn't change what we do. 
I think that that's probably true. I mean, I think that there's been a, I think for a lot of South Africans, there's a feeling of fatigue about, mm. you know, the extent of the information of corruption. And sometimes I think people feel like, I'm just not going to engage with this stuff. But I don't think that's an option for the state and for governments and for local governments that are appointing people. I mean, I think, you know, it's a, it's a complicated legal terrain. I have to admit this. But there are places like India and Indonesia which have what they call, um, it, it's sort of like uh, suitable citizen tests, right, mm-hmm. for whether somebody could be contracted with by the state. And what they'll do is they'll do a background check, you know, if somebody is a fit and proper person to be doing contracting for the state, mm-hmm. taking into account all of the evidence. Now, I would argue that if the Zondo Commission has set out extensive evidence and has made pretty clear findings about Edwin Sodi, that has to be taken into account. And Mm. there must be, I think, we need to start thinking about how we embed that process in government, that we need to be doing background checks on the people we award contracts to, and we need to be very aware of, you know, what is, what about their history makes us think they may not be suitable contractors. I think that's something we have to do like a lot of other countries do at this point. Sure. And of course, you know, like I said earlier, there's a lot that um, you will get to unpack, especially when you're looking at um, the various state-owned enterprises and and how that information has been um, condensed in this book. Even though Paul does say in the beginning, it's not, this book is not about condensing or trying to summarize the entire report mm. because it will be impossible to do that. But uh, let me say that it, it, it has been some, it is a summary. Why don't you want it to necessarily be called the summary of the report? I mean, I don't want it to be a summary of all the work of yes, the commission, right? Yes, so I'm happy yes. to, be, to be a summary of the final report but the whole work of the commission is insane. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the, I provide figures at the beginning, which yeah. is on the commission reported. I mean, they collected, um, you know, just the one figure that blows my mind is, mm. a, is a petabyte of data. And I was, I was sitting with Kaiser Tolle yesterday when we were doing a, a book launch in Rosemark, and he said he'd never heard of the word petabyte. I, I, I'd also never heard of it right? until I read it exactly. in, and your, I hadn't, in your intro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hadn't either. And I was like, what is a petabyte? Mm. And it's, it's, a, it's a million gigabytes of data that the commission collected. Now, so then I did a calculation. What if you took, you know, those little USB flash drives with one gigabyte flash drives and you put them one after the other in a row, Mm. it'd be 8.4 kilometers long. Sure. (laughs) Right. Of one gigabyte USB. That is the extent of the information that the commission, you know, collected. And there's 1.7 million pages of evidence presented just in oral testimony. Mm. So summarizing that is not possible. It's just, you know, that's that's just not goes beyond what anybody I think human could ever do, and it would just end up being thousands of books potentially. I, I want to come to where we are as as a society today, uh, because it it goes back to the issues of 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 lessons, and um, of course towards the the end of the book you talk about the role of um, our current president Cyril Ramaphosa as the then deputy president of 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 South Africa, and this all important question of. What did um, Ramaphosa do when when it comes to fighting corruption, whether as state president or even internally in the ANC? And I think how you've laid out that evidence as it took place uh, in the Zondo Commission of of Inquiry, quite important and and very clear. Mm. You know, his own defense and his own responses. When did he become aware of state capture? What What did he do about it? And... I'm particularly interested um, in the strategy that the president explained to the Zondo Commission of Inquiry about Mm. how he resisted state capture. And according to his evidence, right, the president says he had five options, either to resign, to speak up, acquiesce, I'm reading that wrong, a quest? How do, how do I? Acquiesce. Acquiesce. Right. Did I just say correct? Okay, I said it correctly the first time. Acquiesce and abet or remain and remain silent and remain and resist, right? Mm. So for me, why this struck me is that it made me think about what the state that we're in today is. And if at all, the president's strategy to then resist state's capture, but to resist and deal with corruption today Mm. has not changed from what it was. Mm. 
when he was faced with these matters of state capture? Sure, I mean, it's a good question. And I think, you know, the thing that should be borne in mind about the Zonda Commission is that the Zonda Commission is very critical of Sora Ramaphosa. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how much people remember that and how much people have taken from his final report, but there's there's a report that they do on, on Ramaphosa and the ANC, and the, the commission is absolutely stinging about what Ramaphosa did when he was deputy president because the commission doesn't buy his version. The commission doesn't agree that those are the only options available to him. They didn't buy the argument that if he stood up and resisted that, you know, he would have just gone into the political wilderness and nothing would have happened. Um, you know, so they, the Zondo argues effectively that, that it was actually incumbent on Ramaphosa to do more than he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's very critical of his response. And I think, you know, to an extent, uh, you know, there's a lot of frustration, I think, with Ramaphosa at this point um, from like a... We were we. I think a lot of people understood him to be this anti-corruption president who would who would clear the stables, and that hasn't really happened yet. Um, and I think a part of it is because he himself is is very cautious. I think sometimes he's paralyzed. Um, I don't think he acts boldly as he should in, in in a lot of cases. I think he feels quite trapped in his position. Um, but that said, I think there's a you know there's. He shouldn't himself be involved in criminal cases. Obviously, it's totally inappropriate. And he still has to oversee this this reconstruction of places like the mm. MPA because, you know, the destruction of the MPA is a process that's been happening for, for longer than the Jacob Zuma presidency. You know, it started, you know, with the arms deal. There was a consistent effort to destroy the capacity of the state to investigate serious economic crime because if it was investigated, there'd be very senior people who were implicated in the arms deal. Um, and it's going to take a long time for the MPA to regrow and recapacitate itself and reorient itself. Um, so I can understand both the frustration with Ramaphosa himself, but also understand the constraints that he's working under. Um, all of that said, I think he should have done way more during the state capture period than he actually did. And I agree with Zondo on that. There is somewhat of a of, of a veiled warning here. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's how I read it, right? We... The commission, and, and, and this is what you've written, you, you've written that finally, the commission worried about the president that Ramaphosa's approach might set if it was considered to be without flaw. It would be untenable to send a message that if the same scenario were to happen again sometime in the future, the right thing is not to speak out. Mm-hmm. We today, post the Zondo Commission of Inquiry, are dealing with what we know to still be endemic corruption at many of these institutions that were the subject of the Zondo Commission of Inquiry. Mm-hmm. There's no clear answers about why that is still the case. You mm-hmm. know, you get different answers. No prosecution, it's the NPA not investigating. Mm-hmm. The SIU has done a lot of great work. Mm. You know, it's it's one of the investigative bodies that has actually made significant progress and mm. their reports speak to that. Mm. But they don't get to prosecute people. Mm. And so that that is in the hands of, 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 of another entity. Mm. The Hawks also. Um, one doesn't fully know sort of what, what's fully happening w- with some of these matters. Um, and I wonder the extent to which we can say that there isn't, it may not be overt, but there isn't an ongoing protection mm. of corrupt people and corruption mm. in this country. And I think what you have is um, almost a, a corruption, like a protection of the corrupt um, by default. But mm. what I mean by that is that None of the mechanisms that you need to have in place in order to tackle corruption are meaningfully created and funded. So the thing that the, the commission really focuses in on, and we spoke about this a lot, a lot yesterday, actually, I, when I was doing mm-hmm. my, my book launch, is there was, um, there was a woman who was in the audience who was telling me about, you know, her aunt who, you know, lives in a back room in Morningside because, you know, she's a Harvard-educated um, graduate, but she blew the whistle on corporate corruption and mm-hmm. it ended her career. Um and what the commission is very disturbed by, and I agree, is that there's very little protection for whistleblowers in South mm. Africa. Um, if you are a whistleblower, it's extremely dangerous. And we've seen like the, the scale of political assassinations increasing in South Africa. People's lives and careers are ruined. And the one thing that I think we could do immediately, quite, quite quickly and quite easily, 
is to create a very well-resourced framework for how to handle and and protect whistleblowers. Literally stuff like, we need to be building safe houses for people. Mm-hmm. We need to be providing legal protections for people. So if they blow the whistle, they're not going to be prosecuted for stealing documents or something crazy. Um, so in that sense, I feel like there's a level of protection that's afforded to people because we haven't created these institutions that allow us to tackle corruption. And I think it's very problematic. I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I think the Hawks is a stumbling block. It is a stumbling block mm-hmm. when it comes to, to dealing with corruption. And the number of times that, you know, when I was working with the commission, we were doing this you know, massive trace of money laundering stuff. And we found that the Reserve Bank, they have their own investigative unit, and they'd uncovered huge amounts of evidence about the wrongdoing at all these different companies that were moving billions of rand abroad in money laundering. You know, they'd seized their money, they'd done interviews, they got documents, they put together these like thousand page reports for the governor of the Reserve Bank so they could seize money. But at every single occasion, you know, the Reserve Bank can't prosecute. They handed it on to the Hawks and then nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is something we have to deal with. Um, and, and I've seen recently people have been talking about we need to bring the Scorpions back. And I think that's possibly the greatest idea. <laughs> It takes us back to whether or not our investigative institutions have gone and prosecutorial really institutions have have gone beyond that interference because interference doesn't have to be overt. Mm. It doesn't always require a president making a call to somebody for it to be seen as such. Mm. But just the mere fact that there can be cases that sit on a desk or evidence that sits on somebody's desk and it's simply not looked at, Mm. that in and of itself um, comes down to a form of interference because then we must ask, but why are you not looking at that? Mm. Why are you not doing anything about it? Mm. And it's clear that, you know, I think the the Hawks in particular is is a very problematic institution when it comes to South African law enforcement. And And we know this because we know why the Hawks was created. The Hawks was created in, in the aftermath of the Scorpions being destroyed. Mm-hmm. And the Scorpions were destroyed because they were too good at their job. And I think, you know, there was a very specific and calculated political decision to put the Hawks under the Minister of Police so they could be cabinet direction over the Hawks. And that's very problematic. That shouldn't be happening, right? Um, so, you know, I will say, I, I don't want to get stuck in like a negative loop of complaining because mm. I think that that can be quite disheartening. I do think, you know, that there is political will still at places like the MPA to pursue charges and corruption charges. But I think there's a serious uphill battle in learning how to do it. Um, and I think, you know, pe- when I tell people this, they, you know, it's something people don't think about. But when was the last time we had a serious case of financial crime and corruption prosecuted in South Africa. It was a Shabir Sheikh case. That's 2005. That's 18 years in which prosecutors in the MPA have not been able to hone their skills and practice and develop their ability to bring cases. And that's a new set of skills that we are going to have to learn. The MPA is going to have to learn over time. And I'm hoping, what I'm hoping is that Mm -hmm. in the process of pursuing the cases from the Zonda Commission of Inquiry, we start building that local capacity to do that. Because it's a real opportunity. We haven't started very well, given given what's happened with with one case so far. But Mm -hmm. I don't want to get into that. I want to play some of the voice notes that are coming through, Paul. And then I also want you to speak about um, your own beef with the commission. Because you've got some beef with the commission (laughs) as well. Hi, Kathy. So my interest regarding the Zondo Commission would be to have a mirror of pre-1994, what happened then, how were state institutions operated, how money was funneled, how was parties um, funded, and how was land sold, um, government land sold very quickly before the handover for next to nothing. Thank you. Katie, it's Vugan from Devon. What is so disappointing about this Zondo Commission uh, was it was so biased the way that uh, Brian Molefe came there the one you're talking about right now he came there and he, he explained everything that that was done by by the Glenco the Glenco which is uh, been been uh, fingered across across the world for his shenanigans. But 
nobody's wanna wanna talk about that side of of corruption. Was was this only uh, for the Guptas, or it, it was it was all about corruption? Let's be honest here. Hey, Kathy and your guests, that is a brilliant, brilliant conversation that you guys are having. And I'm so glad that you guys are talking about whistleblowing and how unsafe it is. As we speak, I am based in Brussels, Belgium, because I had to skip the country. Um, um, my, I was threatened. My life, I, I was threatened because I had blew a whistle on corruption in one of the DFIs, um, you know. Um, so with that, my life was threatened. Um, my family was attacked and everything else, and I had to run, I had to skip the country. You know, it, it's almost three years that I'm, I'm, I'm living in, 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 in Brussels. And imagine if I did not have resources or anything else, I would have actually, my life would have actually ended because of that. So you guys are touching a very good point in terms of corruption or in terms of whistleblowing. And I wish we can do something with, with, with whistleblowing. Thank you so much. Incredible show. Thanks. Bye. All right. Th- thanks for those WhatsApp voice notes. Paul, you want to respond quickly? Sure. So, I mean, first of all, I, I just want to say, you know, my heart goes out to the person who's, who burned the whistle in, in Brussels. That's an absolutely horrific situation. You know, I salute your bravery and I'm, I'm sorry it's come to this. Um, we were having a long discussion about this yesterday, and the one thing I, I do want to mention is that clearly the, the the mechanisms to protect whistleblowers in South Africa are lacking. But there is an organisation that is very important and is doing really good work around this stuff, which is called the Platform to Protect Whistleblowers in Africa, also known as PLAF, um, run by an amazing um, jurist out of France, and they are basically stepping into the breach, protecting whistleblowers in Africa providing them with legal advice and other sort of cultural resources to help them survive it. So mm-hmm. if you are a whistleblower um, and you've experienced this sort of thing, I, I highly recommend you get hold of PLAF. Um, you know, their website's online and, and they can assist you with that. They are really are quite phenomenal. My, my colleague, Andrew Feinstein, is on their board. And he always talks about their great work. Um, in terms of the pre-apartheid era, I mean, I think there is a real reckoning to be had with apartheid era economic crime. And, and I'm, I'm, I think everybody's disappointed by the fact that it hasn't been dealt with. So, but there is somebody who's put all the information in the public domain, and that's my colleague and a longtime friend, a guy called Henny van Furen, who did this amazing book called Apartheid Guns and Money, mm-hmm. which is the chapter and verse about apartheid era economic crime. And he and his, his organization, Open Secrets, have been aggressively pursuing some form of justice in South Africa and, you know, in places like Luxembourg, trying to make sure the banks that enabled economic crime, the arms dealers that did the same thing, are properly held to account. And what I'd like to see is I think, you know, a lot of their work that they do around this is actively sometimes pre- prevented by the state in South Africa. Um, and I think it's, it's high time we discuss why the South African state in its current incarnation, mm-hmm. is so unwilling to let us go back in time and look at apartheid economic, economic crimes and talk about stuff like reparations, which to me is like a no-brainer, right? That has to the be discussed. obvious. Absolutely. Go to Germany, look at what they did. Exactly. I mean, mm. you know, this is a, you know, hundreds of years of, of colonial economic mm. exploitation. Mm. You know, that can't just be swept under the rug. So I, in terms of an information perspective, people want to know about the story, I highly recommend Henny's book. I also suggest you maybe you, uh, look at the work of Open Secrets as well who've been doing this. I mean, in terms of Brian Malefi, like, I'm not going to defend Glencore because, look, Glencore are not nice people. And, you know, as an anti-corruption investigator who looks at grand corruption around the world, I know the extent to which Glencore has been accused of being involved in, in, in bad stuff. But that doesn't excuse what Brian Malefi did. And it's also not the only thing that Brian Malefi did, right? So, I mean, the commission is very clear that it's in addition to his intervention in Glencore, which is totally unjustifiable, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, I think the commission hammers home one thing, which is very important, which is that the outcome of the whole Optimum Glencore thing was that Optimum collapsed and it threatened South Africa's coal supply. You know, there there are very disturbing figures in the commission's report about how the whole capture of Optimum, which was facilitated by Malefi, led to like serious potential long-term consequences for our electricity grid and our ability to produce electricity. Like our coal supply dropped dramatically because suddenly Optimum Mm -hmm. wasn't producing coal. And just the way in which process was flouted in that Optimum deal. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got a whole um, sort of section that that deals with that prepayment, right? Mm. And what went into that.
prepayment. And and I think this is why a conversation like this is important. Um, what you see reported on in the media is just a fraction of the information that has come out of that report. And and Paul has tried to, uh, you know, explain it and make it plain for us. 8.1 kilometers, you said, mm-hmm. of you one gigabyte USB. So that's a lot of information. Mm-hmm. And this is why a tool like this is important for ordinary citizens. We can all just log on. Zondo at your fingertips dot info. Paul, I'm going to ask you to hang ten just a little bit longer because I think it's also important that you tell us about the beef that you have mm-hmm. with the commission because you did a lot of work, made submissions on what you were hoping the mm. commission would also investigate, but they didn't quite go in, in that direction. It's 11 o'clock now. It's time for the latest news. The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. 7 after 11 o'clock. Welcome to the third and final hour of the show. So we're going to be wrapping up the conversation uh, with Paul Holding. And I'm really glad that um, you've enjoyed sort of the interaction that we've been having with him and just the, the knowledge, right? Um, if you could, you probably go into Paul's brain and just unpack everything that goes in there. I don't know how <laughs> he's carrying around <laughs> as much information as he is, right? It really is incredible. And, and I'm in awe um, of, of, of what you've been able to do with this book, especially. Let's talk about then your own, because you, you, you were involved in helping the commission with part of its investigations mm-hmm. as well. But you went further than that because you believe that state capture was not limited to what was before the commission. And in fact, there were matters that you wanted the commission to look into that, unfortunately, mm-hmm. they never got round to. Yeah, I mean, I think, so first of all, I, I think I should say that I think in general terms, mm-hmm. the Zonda Commission was a pretty phenomenal piece of work. And mm-hmm. we need to recognize that as South Africans. I do say in the book, and I've said it repeatedly in interviews, that the Zonda Commission is globally unique. There's nothing like this that's ever happened anywhere in the world. And I can tell you after living in the UK for a while, there is no way that this would ever happen in the UK. It just wouldn't be permissible from a political perspective. But that means, you know, it doesn't mean the Zonda Commission isn't immune from criticism. And I do have, you know, I disagree with it on occasions. Mm. And I think there's, there's two areas where I felt the commission could have done more and fell down a bit. And the one is the enablers of state capture. So there's one section in the the chapter on SAA that deals with the auditors, which is brilliant. It's really, it's it's so revealing and insightful about how powerful the role of auditors are. But there's nothing else in the Zonda Commission report really about the auditing profession. And I think that's a, that's a big, um, that's a big misopportunity. I think the South African banks really get away way too easily in the Zonda Commission because there's so much of the money that we were, we were, ch- we were, following was going through South African banks and they should mm-hmm. have done more to prevent the money laundering and identifying the corruption than they did. You know, it shows that they, you know, in 2016, they stopped those bank accounts. It shows they could do something, but it shows that, you know, for a long period of time, they chose not to. Um, so I think that's a, a real downfall. And I think the last one is that, which I think is maybe a very typically South African thing, and I say this as a South African, is that we're very focused on South Africans, right? We're very focused on our, our South African psychodrama and our political drama. And it makes us forget there's other participants in state capture. So for me, the big hole in the report mm-hmm. is that the commission doesn't make nearly enough specific findings about um, multinational companies. So but you're talking your McKinsey's. McKinsey's. You know, they say they're, they're quite mm-hmm. damning of McKinsey and Bain, but they don't mm-hmm. actually make any recommendations on them. They're not mm-hmm. like the MPA should go and report to people abroad. And what I really was, would hope was that the commission would make definitive findings about people like T-Systems as well, who actually, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the second biggest beneficiary of Gupta-related state capture. You mm-hmm. know, they got these huge contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, and But the commission doesn't make a specific finding about T-Systems. It makes a finding about, you know, all the other people who awarded them contracts, mm-hmm. but T-Systems isn't mentioned. What I was really hoping, because it would have been very powerful, was if Zondo said, we need to tell our law enforcement colleagues around the world about what's happened in South Africa. So those companies can also be held to account. You know, Zonda's not a law, uh, 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 a court of law, but Zonda himself is the most senior judge in the country now. Mm. And if the most senior judge in the country is saying to, his, to, to law enforcement in Germany or Switzerland and the US, you need to look into these guys, that's taken seriously. And I feel like that was a missed opportunity. I suppose um, part of, 
to to add what you're saying when we saw how the matter of, of Bain and capital was taken on in the UK mm. that of course you know turned things around and put pressure on the South African government mm. and, and you're saying that they could potentially be more than more room for that absolutely yeah. so I mean it's actually a big part of the work that we're doing now post yeah. the Zonda Commission is that I, I really firmly believe that and this was also the problem with the arms deal as well, right? There are so many companies in places like France and Germany and the United Kingdom and America who are more than happy to take advantage of South Africa and South African corruption, right? So I think that, um, you know, what we're doing now is we are approaching law enforcement authorities around the world and saying, you've got to take serious stock of this. And in Germany, we've been mm. quite successful. Mm. You know, in Germany, we approached the office of the, the prosecutor in Frankfurt via, we got a compliance lawyer to do it for us. And the Germans have opened up a, a preliminary criminal investigation into T-systems. And I think that needs to happen way more widely because it can't be that people like T-systems get away with it. They have to be held to account. There has to be serious consequences for corporate actors. Um, it's not just the people like Brian Malefi who need to go to jail. It's T-Systems executives as well. Ultimately, it's making sure that the work that has been done does not come to naught, mm. that we know what we know, but then so what, right? Mm. And, and you're helping to answer uh, part of that question of so what now? Mm. What what do we do now? What, what are the tools that we have in our hands? Mm. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming into studio um, and, and having this conversation uh, with us. Like I said, the website zondo at your fingertips dot info. Go onto it. Um, like I said earlier, it's very easy to use. The information has been, ah, uh, you know, densified, and it, it, it's you're not going to struggle um, understanding what happened. If you're looking for specific players, you can go go onto it and 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 search names, etc., etc. It really is a very, very useful and helpful tool. And all of the best to you, Paul. And thank you always for being available for us. Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's great to be back in studio. All right. <laughs> thank you so much. Paul Holden, the author of Zondo at Your Fingertips. Um, got a message here that's just um, come in. Uh, Patrick says, what a brilliant interview. Clear, calm, cool, collected and balanced. But he says, but I'm not going to read book yet. Oh, only once prosecutions begin. No, Patrick. No, 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 no. You must absolutely go into the website at least. You don't just need to read the book. Go into the website. Go into the website. It, it really will enrich also the kind of conversations that we can have about some of these players. We'll take a quick break and then we're back with our health feature for today. Today we're looking at a depression amongst cancer survivors.